All right, now, um, let, me, let me lay a few groundwork thoughts on the table, and if you want to use the, the sheet, that's the cover sheet for this that Fred sent you, it would be really good. But what I'm interested in is establishing two aspects of the study of the book of Genesis. And possibly the best thing to do to accomplish that is to look at this. This is called a synthetic chart. This chart that's on the uh, front page. It looks, a lot of you have it out, and that's good. So what I want you to, I want to draw your attention to this because it's very, very important at least I think it's very, very important to understand why the book of Genesis is so, such an important book. It's obviously the first book of the Bible. And the word Genesis, I'm sure you know, means beginning. <laughs> the Genesis, the beginning of something. The Genesis of your life was when you were conceived, and then nine months later when you were born. Uh, so Genesis is the beginning. Now, what I want you to do looking at this chart is please note the first 11 chapters are separated from chapter 12 through 50 by a strong, bold, vertical line. Because from chapter 12 through the end of the book, chapter 50, that material is organized around four individuals, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. These individuals are called the patriarchs, the fathers of faith. The first 11 chapters deal with creation, fall, and fall is the metaphor or the term used for the entrance of sin into the world, the flood, and then the Tower of Babel. Now, I'm going to be very frank about this. Those who are skeptical about the value of God's word doubt that these first 11 chapters are history. They doubt that they're true. They would use, and even those who say they are Christians, and they want to name the name Christian, will say these are myths. This is mythology to explain something we don't understand, but it's not true. The idea that God created directly all physical things in the universe in, and however you're going to understand day, in six days, is mythological. It's just a story. And the story of a literal Adam, or the, the, uh, the narrative of a literal Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is a myth. The world didn't start with two human beings, a man and a woman. That's a myth. That's a story. It's just to tell something, to explain something. And the idea of a literal uh, uh, Satan who's leading a rebellion against God, that's, well... Sort of maybe true, because there's such thing as evil, but all Satanists is just a personification of evil. There isn't a real, literal Satan. And then the idea that there was a Noah and an actual universal flood on planet Earth is absolutely absurd. Nobody believes that anymore. And then to even conclude at the end of these 11 chapters that there was this, on the plain of Sharnard, in the very southern part of Iraq today, there, there was this tower of, of, of Babel, and as a result of that, is the origin of all human languages because God's confusing the human language, uh, confusing humans uh, and, and forcing them to spread because they didn't obey what he wanted them to do. That's all myth. That's all stories. That's not true. So history, in terms of the book of Genesis, begins with chapter 12 because there really wasn't a historical figure Abraham. 
But the first 11 chapters aren't trustworthy, they're not history, they're just myths, they're stories. Now, I'm going to lay all my cards on the table. I totally, utterly reject that. I believe the first 11 chapters are history. I believe that they are verifiable, dependable, reliable history of how and why God created all things. And we have a little sense of where did Satan come from, which we'll get into that in a minute, and that there really was a literal flood, and there really was a literal Adam and Eve, and there really was a literal Tower Tower of Babel. And all of those are historical events. Now, it's a little more difficult to give an exact date to some of that. We know exactly when Abraham lived. I can give you the exact date and will when we get to that of Abraham. I think we can be very precise as to when he was born and when he died. But it's a little more difficult to be precise about the exact dates of Noah or Adam or anything like that. But that it's still is history is what I will defend as we get through it. So I'm just putting that on the table as we start. Any questions about that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, scientists and biblical believers are called upon uh, to substantiate the basis of their beliefs. Uh, what is the basis of their doubting? These, the creation, the fall, the flood, and they, is there two or three words you could use to kind of reflect that? It's hard to verify it using the scientific method. And the anti-supernatural bias of the modern, postmodern world means if I can't verify it, I therefore will reject it, which means in that approach, you have no element of faith. If there's no faith and, and, and no, uh, because any, I mean, the more you think about this, the more you really come to the conclusion, that's really a silly way to live, to live without any faith, because everybody in this room trusts in something. Even when you go out and you, know, you walk across a bridge, like right out here, you're going to trust that bridge is going to hold. Well, how did, well, because scientists and engineers designed it and built it. And so I'm just, you know, I mean, that's a ridiculous example, but our life is, is characterized completely by faith. So um, the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, in that wonderful hallmark, a, a hall of fame of faith, says the very first element they say, faith is believing that God created all things out of nothing. That's the beginning of faith. That's the starting point of it. That there was a God, and that God created all things. That is a statement of faith. Now, there are many, many, many scientific methodologies and assumptions and deductions that you can make that can get you to that same point. Some people call it intelligent design. That begs for some kind of a designer. I mean, you can look at it a lot of ways, but what I'm going to argue for here, I'm going to try, I'm going to, it's going to be difficult, particularly in these 11 chapters, but I'm going to try to stay away from science. It's not that I think that anything we're going to be studying is against science, but at least for the beginning, I'm going to try to stay away from that for a minute, and I want to, I want to, get, I want to get an accurate understanding of what is the text telling us. And then once we have a clear understanding of what the text is telling us, then we'll say, can science corroborate this? In other words, up until, honestly, very recently in human history, as those who are believers, 
have always believed, and indeed God even teaches us, but have always believed that God reveals himself in two ways. Actually, more than that, but two primary ways, through his creation and through his word. We call it general revelation, special revelation. And they don't contradict each other, they complement each other. They support each other. That's a very difficult proposition for people in the postmodern world to accept. They don't accept that. Why don't they accept it? Because they don't want to accept it. I mean, it's just, I mean, there is a reasonable logic, and there is, I mean, it's compelling to put these two together as the two volumes of God's revelation. And they don't contradict each other. And honestly, and I'm sure, I'm sure you know this, but it's only very recently that science and, 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 and Christianity were regarded as opposites on the, on the pole, as a dichotomy, as juxtaposed against each other. Sir Isaac Newton, who is the one who, using mathematics, put together the basic laws of modern physics, Isaac Newton spent more time studying the Bible than he did physics, which is a confounding enigma to his biographers. How could this great scientist study the Bible so much? Because he believed the Bible was the word of God, and he believed that what he was doing was helping people to better understand the world that God's created. A world of order, a world that's mathematically precise, a world, where did that come from? Well, it just randomly developed. Or a God who is a God of order, a God who is mathematically precise. I mean, if you, were, if you followed that, this goes back quite a few months ago, but that, that mission to Pluto, do you remember that? It took nine years. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? And they took great, it was an amazing, absolutely amazing thing. The only way that was successful is because they mathematically, with great precision, worked out how to do it. I heard it it is analogous to firing a bullet at a target 7,500 miles away and hitting the target. Which, first of all, that bullet doesn't travel. I mean, it was just, it was almost an impossible thing to to be able to mathematically be that, and they nailed it. Well, that's just, it's just the way the world is. It just kind of randomly came together that way that Pluto's moving around the sun and, and we just, you know, it just kind of, when the big, it just all exploded and it just hit that. Or, and maybe that's true, or it was a part of the design of a creator who is a God of order and a God of structure and a God of mathematical precision. And that we can therefore build our lives around that. And then the question was, why is there so much disorder and dysfunction? Well, the Bible has an answer to that, too, in Genesis 3. It's sin. And so that's why the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis are so foundational for us. They construct the foundation of our worldview. So, okay? So that's how I want, I, I want you to look at it. So this is an original, but you look at that same sheet. It has been said that you could outline the Bible in this way. Genesis 1 and 2, creation. Genesis 3, the fall and rebellion of humanity. Genesis 4 through Revelation 22, trying to get back to Genesis 1 and 2. In many ways, that's exactly what it is. The truth is that what occurred, I'm reading from these notes here, in the initial chapters of Genesis are not myth, legend, or fantasy. They are historically accurate accounts of God's work and of early human history. The remaining chapters lay the foundation for God's redemptive plan, the nation of Israel. 
And so with that set of foundational comments, I'd like to start our study of the book. Would that be all right? Any questions? Amen. What? Amen. Oh, amen. Okay. All right. Now, I, I just, I, I felt a need, and I feel as an emotion, I felt a need to really make sure you understand where I'm coming from in my, in my study of this book and how I'm going to, to teach it and, and the, the material and the way it's organized and so on. Well, this, this, what you read. Yes. That's pretty clear. Good. Okay. I don't want any ambiguity, Woody. I want it to be clear. Because honestly, and I mean this very sincerely, and it may, I hope it doesn't, but it may even apply to some of your pastors. I mean, I don't know where a lot of you go to church or whatever. And you ask them, do you believe that Genesis 1 through 11 are historically true? They may say, no, I really don't believe that. I think they're myth. I mean, I know there are pastors in this, in this metro area that that's where they're coming from. So, I mean, I don't believe that. And everyone I studied under and everyone that um, uh, I spent a lot of time studying this book. I mean, a lot of time. My, my life is now given to studying and teaching God's Word. Now that I'm done, I'm not in leadership anymore. I'm very much involved in my church on staff there, but part-time. So this is, this, is my, this is what I do. And I mentor, teach, and try to disciple men. That's my goal. Um, my wife and I are very involved in several ministries and support several ministries. But if you want to, if you want in-depth, focused study of the Bible, keep coming to this class. If you want to study other things, then don't come to this class. That's what I'm doing. And if, if that's okay with you, great. If you stop coming, then I'll know that my ministry at this is over here. You know, I'll do something else. But I just want you to understand where I'm coming from because it's re- I feel very strongly about this. And I, I believe uh, that it's valuable to spend time in in-depth study of God's Word. Okay? Uh, yes, sir. I forget your first name. Joe. Joe, yes. Since Genesis comes to us from the Jewish people, how do they look at chapters 1 through 11? It's their book. They should have the ultimate authority. It, depend, it depends on whether, because remember, Judaism is very divided today. It depends on whether you're an Orthodox Jew, a Reformed Jew, or a conservative Jew. An Orthodox Jew will look at these chapters as historically accurate accounts. Reform and Judaism and conservative Judaism, both of which were born in the United States, would probably not look at it. Most of them would not. I mean, I know some of the rabbis. I don't know any, I don't know any that are in town anymore, but I had known a couple. They went to the rotary I went to. And I, where they were a reform, so I knew where they were coming from, and they would not look at this history. You say conservative also does not look Well, it's a little, it depends. There really depends on the rabbi. Because conservative Judaism is trying to find a middle point between orthodox and reform. They're trying to find a middle point. And so, you know, that's why it it just depends. But I'm almost positive almost every reform rabbi is going to look at it as mythological, whereas uh, orthodox would not. All right, now, on the board I wrote something that, uh, I hope you can see it, Um, and I had asked Fred to send this out, and and he did. I I wanted you to, if you had time to read the first uh, chapter, and then just to read and think about the first two verses. 
first two verses are, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit was hovering over the face of the water. Now there is a tremendous amount of detail and information in those two verses. The challenge of how to look at those two verses is, like with anything, how do I organize this? I mean, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, is a declarative sentence. It's declaring something. God, in the beginning, created the heavens and the earth. All right, now, as we look at this, the word, and I want to talk about the importance of the word created. I don't normally do this, but I'd like to do this here if I could, because you'll see how this unfolds in the book of Genesis. There are a number of names for God that are used as the narrative of Genesis progresses. So the very first term or name or title, I don't think about that, for God in verse 1 of chapter 1 is the word is Elohim. Now, that is very important because when you put an I am on a Hebrew word, it makes it into a plural. That doesn't demand the Trinity. It doesn't insist on the Trinity, but it allows for the Trinity. Because when you read verse 1, you have no idea that God is Trinity. It doesn't tell you anything about that. It's just saying Elohim created the heaven and the earth. We're going to, as we, as we go through the Bible, you see more and more details given and explained about who this Elohim is. And so the I am allows, or it doesn't demand, it doesn't insist on but it allows for God being Trinity. And it's a plural, but it's often a plural of majesty. It's just a wonderful title for God, Elohim. Now, in the beginning, that phrase. Okay, that's not a hard phrase to understand, but it's just simply declaring something. When you start thinking about the beginning of things, where should you start your thinking? With God. If you're going to start thinking about beginnings of all things, you don't start with some conceptual transcendent idea or some unknown, can't figure out who he is, or think of randomness or think of chance. This doesn't allow you to do that. All it's saying to us is that when you start thinking about beginnings, you start thinking about God. And the act or the focus of this declarative sentence is what this Elohim did. He created. And the word for create there is bara, B-A-R-A. That's the Hebrew word. I'm sorry to do this, but I think it's important for you to see something. When that word is used in the the Bible, in the the, uh, 39 books of the Old Testament, it is always used of God. It is never used of a human being, baraing anything. There are other words that are used when humans create something. But the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, and in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, state to us that this Elohim created all things out of nothing. So in other words, when... The term Barak is used of God, create. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, 
2. In Revelation chapter 4, what's that verse? <clears throat> Tell us, I'm going to use the Latin phrase for this. That this bara, this create, is ex nihilo. Ex nihilo is Latin for what? Out of nothing. Now, you have to think about that. That's why the secular mind has a great deal of difficulty with this verse. Because bara ex nihilo, creating out of nothing, means that at one time there was nothing, and at some point there's something. Isn't that an elementary way to put it? But it, it, it automatically rejects, now, this is a philosophical idea, but I'm, I think I need to say it, it automatically rejects the eternality of matter. Do you know what I mean by that? that matter is not eternal. The physical elements, however you look at that, are not eternal. They are created. And so this verse is declaring something to us, that Elohim, if we can put it in human terms, made a decision to create, ex nihilo. And what did he create? The heavens and the earth. Now, again, heavens and earth is what we call a marriage. Now, I know you've never heard of it. Unless you've studied literature, you've never heard of that term. But what it means, a marriage is a figure of speech. When you want to talk about something that includes everything, it doesn't leave anything out. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Why does he say that? I am the beginning and the end. Before the beginning, I existed, and after the end, I still exist. It's a way of saying I'm eternal. So we sometimes say it, I, I want to know this from A to Z. What do you mean by that? I want to know everything. I want to know everything at the very beginning. I want to know everything in between. I want to know everything. So when the Bible declares that Elohim, Barak, created ex nihilo, heavens and earth, it's a merism. He created everything. The heavens, which involve everything you cannot see with the human eye and everything exists, and the physical universe, everything you can see and touch and explore and discover and whatever, God created all and everything in between. It's a way of saying God created everything. Is that a way of, did you mention the word the Trinity when you were explaining Elohim? El Elohim allows for the Trinity, yes. Okay. And so... You, you have something really, let's, let's, let's put what we learn from the other parts of the Bible into this sentence. <clears throat> Elohim, as I said, is a plural of majesty in the Hebrew language. It allows for the Trinity, it doesn't demand it. But as the Bible unfolds its revelation and explains, we come to understand clearly it is God as Trinity. But anyway, so you may join us, but wouldn't that be a revolutionary entrance, a woman coming into our class? <laughs> I don't know why I said that. I just, it really lost my train of thought. What was I? Uh... Oh, so you have, I mean, just think about it the way the scriptures unfold. Here you have Elohim, God. And the Bible makes it very clear it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. 
one essence of three persons who differ relationally and functionally. Okay, before Genesis 1 occurred, your eternity, was there love? Absolutely. Because John chapter 5, verse 19 through 24 tells us that the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. And then John 15, the Holy Spirit brought into it. So there was love. Was there communion? And I don't mean, you know, the Lord's table. I mean communication. Yes. So you have Elohim, the Trinitarian God, one essence of three persons, making the decision to create. And what these 11 chapters explain to us is why God made that decision. He's going to need it further on <laughs> for fires and, <laughs> and things like that. But, I mean, God, would you agree, God has no needs. By definition, God has no needs. God doesn't need anything, by definition. So that God made the decision to create there's something going on here. And what these 11 chapters explain to us is what's going on. Why does God do this? So you have this declarative sentence, this declaration. In the beginning, Elohim, out of nothing, created all things. Heavens and earth, marriage. So my own way of thinking about this verse is that verse 1 and yeah, I did write it up there. Verse 1 is like a title. It's like a header. You know what I mean by header? I mean, it's, like, it's like a title. It's like an all-encompassing statement of what is to follow. All right? You know, we have almost 20 minutes on this first verse, but that's, that's okay. That's why it's so important, because these are so familiar. You're so familiar with this verse. But to really take it apart is really important. Jim? So, I think you did. I didn't hear discussion about the heavens. He created the heavens. Is that what we think of as the solar systems and all of that? Or? Absolutely. Absolutely. Anything that you can think of beyond the physical world, God created it. Well, in verse 3 of... of uh, it's going to be specific. It says, universe, that the universe was formed at God's command, mm-hmm. so that what is seen was made was not made out of what is visible. Right, right, ex nihilo. And so, Jim, I, I'm not sure, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm not getting your question. Do you mean what is beyond the solar system that we know? Everything that is. Everything. Everything. And that's one of the, to me, I mean, I um, I know you all. One of the things I've loved about the Hubble telescope, which, you know, is, is still continuing. It's amazing. But those photographs that the Hubble is continuing to send, even the photographs that came from that Pluto expert, they're absolutely magnificent. And you... Look at those and you examine them and you, you see the little commentaries about what all you're seeing and all that. Wow. That's our God who did that. That's our God who did that. Because you have a choice. You, your choice is either, and let's, not, let's just make it broad at first, either something brought all that into being or it just randomly by chance occurred. 
Because you don't have any, they're the only two choices you have. And if you believe there's something that brought to you, then you have to start to, then I know something about who that is. Has that one who did all that revealed himself? Can I know something about him? Can I know him? Well, that's what the Bible is all about. But when you see that all of the wondrous uh, dimensions of, of, of this universe that the Hubble is just helping us to see and understand even more, you do, you have to, is this either bears evidence of something or someone that brought all this into existence, or it's a product of randomness. And much, not all, but much of modern science is opting for randomness. It just happened. There is no design, capital D or small d. There's no design. And so, you know, to me, and this is one of the things, you read Psalm 19. King David is in Jerusalem, and if you've ever been there, you know, during the, during the summer in Jerusalem, and even when you're out in Judea, the, the sky is filled with stars. Because around here, there's so much artificial light, you don't get to see it. I, my wife got me a t- telescope for my retirement, and I, I love it, and I use it. But I, to me, really use it, i got to get way out of Omaha. I'm serious. There's just too much artificial light. But I'm saying, so here's David. He looks up, he says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the word heavens is the same word that's used in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. That's a, again, that's a, it's a declarative sentence. It's a statement. And the person who rejects supernatural says, no, they don't. They just tell us how great we are that we discovered all that. That's really cynical. I shouldn't have put it that way. But, you know, it's just you either look at the things that the Hubble is helping us to understand in that re- recent Pluto expedition, expedition, and you say, wow, Lord, I thought I knew about you. I thought I understood about you. The more I study your world, the more I really don't know that much about you. How unbelievable you are. You created all this. Amen. And then uh, Phil Yancey in his, one of his little books, I was just wondering, he writes, this is a number of years ago he wrote this book, but he says, you know, it's only recently that human eye has been able to see what is seven miles down in the ocean. Seven miles is about the deepest part of the ocean. It's the Pacific, it's off the coast of Japan. And he says, you know, we discovered the complexity of life there, the beauty of the strange, weird-looking creatures. And Yancey says, that's existed for thousands of years. We just discovered it. We've just started to enjoy it. Who's enjoyed it for all these thousands of years? Answer that. God. God created it. And it's complexity and unique, uniqueness. And they're really sort of bizarre-looking creatures because they're so deep. And it's just, it's a nut. You can, well, that's just a product of randomness, and there's no design, there's no purpose to it. It's just a driving force of natural selection, and that just explains it. There's nothing else that explains it. We can say, here's just another piece of evidence of my God who loves beauty, who loves diversity, who loves variety, who loves complexity, but yes, does things with mathematical precision. That's my God. And when I study his world, that's what I see. And so, you know, it's just, we always are faced with this choice. And the book of Genesis is helping us to start, when you start studying this, begin with the proposition that God exists and God created these things. Do they change? Do they adapt? Of course they do. They, they constantly adapt. Peggy and I were down at 
the uh, uh, Henry Dollar Zoo on Friday, and um, in the uh, IMAX they have a uh, it's a wonderful a wonderful film on the Galapagos Islands. It's a, it's a tremendous film. And you just see that in that very unique, it's very, I don't know if you know anything about that, it's off the coast of Ecuador, but it's where all the major ocean currents meet, and it's the complexity and diversity of life in that very small archipelago, that's really what it is. It's amazing. And how all these forms of life adapt and complexity, and you just see, oh my goodness. And you can either say, well, here's just a proof of random natural selection, or... Here's just another little piece of evidence of my God who loves beauty and diversity and complexity and, 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 and builds into his creatures this ability to adapt to the change. I mean, I it's absolutely a fabulous movie. And I use that just because Genesis is saying to us, when you begin your thinking, you begin with God. Or you say, I reject all that, and so you have to have another explanation for okay, randomness, chance, and an impersonal force. That explains it. Okay. May the Lord bless you as you try to figure out everything with that assumption. But to me, and I, you know, I haven't always believed that. Before 1972, I didn't. But I'm telling you, it has it unleashes an appreciation, understanding, and opportunity to praise and worship God in a way that I feel sorry for the person who doesn't begin their thinking with God. They're missing out on something that's really beautiful about life. Jim, doesn't science really, it, it cannot function for progression without cause and effect and on the basis of random, mm -hmm. randomness. It cannot move scientific research forward. Because it almost counts on a certain amount of predictability within the paradigm in which they're, which they're trying to seek additional knowledge and information. Except when it comes to beginning. Because I'm, and I'm, I'm serious, because I had a scientist tell me that. Except when it comes to beginning. Now, I have a lot of friends who are scientists, who have PhDs, who are well-tenured and everything, but they also are believers. But those who don't, they say, but that you can't, you can't, what you're saying, and I agree with that because I do all my research based on mathematical precision, but I cannot make that assumption when it comes to the singular event of the Big Bang. That was a singular one-time event of the Big Bang. And you find that reason to be? Well, to me, I mean, okay. So then, I mean, then you ask this question, well, then, okay, okay, follow your paradigm, understand your model, what caused the Big Bang? You're asking a question science can't answer. I had, a, I had a PhD in astrophysics tell me that. You were asking a question that we can't answer. And my response was, I can. I mean, I can answer it. You won't agree with my answer because you already have the presupposition there is no such supernatural. But I have the answer to that. It's God. And whether you believe in the Big Bang model, that's not what I'm saying. It's, and it's really fascinating because I, I think I may have told you, there's a great book, it's about 20 years old, but it's a guy by the name Robert Jastrow, who's not a believer as far as I know, but he wrote a book called God and the Astronomers. He puts God in quotes. But he has the last chapter, it's a, it's a little allegory, and he tells this story of these scientists climbing up this mountain of truth. And that's, you know, that's what science is, trying to understand, discover truth. And they climb up, they finally get to the top, and what do they see? A bunch of theologians sitting around a circle. And what Jastro is arguing, again, he's not writing from a Christian, he's just saying, 
Astrophysics, science, physics, much of biology, etc., is now at the point where they're asking exactly the same question as theology is asking, which is how did all this start? And they have concluded we can't answer that. That's beyond the realm of science. And that's where theology kicks in, <laughs> so to speak. So, I mean, that's why the book of Genesis is the beginning point of how we think about all things. And so just because you believe God created doesn't mean you can't be a scientist. Like I said, I mean, I know men and so a few women who have PhDs, they're tenured, they're great teachers, they do research, but they also are Christians. Those things are not mutually exclusive. But it is more difficult in some areas for a scientist to also be a believer. I mean, it is difficult, but there are many. The current attorney, uh, um, the current Surgeon General of the United States, is a Christian. He's a believer, which has not always been the case. All right. Yeah, uh, Daryl. Yeah, we, we just spent months going through Revelation. Yes. And we, we talked about the part where uh, the twenty-four <clears throat> elders were standing around, sitting around the throne, saying, "Holy, holy, holy," and we saw that spiritual aspect. Right. But when we go back to Genesis and we see that God actually created all this, yeah. we talk about what you did about Pluto, mm-hmm. and we see the magnitude, you know, that's just going to add another whole dimension Absolutely. to our Absolutely. praise and adoration of who God mm-hmm. really is. Mm-hmm. He not only saved us, but he, he made all these things for his enjoyment, but likewise for ours. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why many, you just can't, absolutely prove it. Many believe that in the new heaven and new earth, we will explore the universe. Because why did God create all this? Why did he create this enormous expanse that the Hubble is helping us to understand now? I mean, you say, well, that's too fantastic. Okay, remember, this is the new heaven and new earth. This is eternity. I mean, I hope that's true. It's a deduction. Can't prove it necessarily. But if God created all of this, why wouldn't he want us also in our glorified resurrected bodies where we bring all the fruits of our labor to him, which is what Revelation 21 says we will do, which includes exploring his world? That's kind of an exciting thought, isn't it? I know we don't get excited in this class about biblical truth, but it's an exciting thought because if he is the creator of all things, he created it for his enjoyment and his, his expressions of his beauty, complexity, variety, diversity, mathematical precision. But why could it not also be for his image bearers to explore and be creative cultivators with him of his world, which is what we're called to do in the first place? You see why it is so important to begin all of your thinking with God? Because the more you do the more you just, you, and that's what Daryl, I think, was saying, you keep coming back to praise and adoration of him. All right. Can I go to verse 2? Yeah. All right. Verse 2. Now, I don't know how you will look at this. This is a very, very difficult verse. It really is. It's a very difficult verse to process. The earth was without form, void, and darkness was over the face of the earth, or the face of the deep, excuse me. 
the editors correctly put a period there. Okay, so let's just let's stop there, and then we'll, I don't know if we'll even get to this. But the Spirit of God, was. we'll talk about that next week. But I want to really, just in an initial reading, when you see words like without form, void, and darkness, they're almost ominous words. Do you know what I mean by on, ominous? Um, they're almost uh, words that bring up negative. They are perplexing words. Let's start with perhaps the more familiar of the three, darkness. <clears throat> now, obviously, you would, you would understand darkness is, is, is used because Light hasn't been invented yet, uh, been created yet, which is what we'll look at in the next section. But just think with me, and I'm asking you to make some conclusions here, but you, enough of you have enough of a knowledge of the Bible. In the Bible, is darkness ever used in a positive way? Does darkness connote something positive? It, it, it usually doesn't. Colossians chapter 1. Paul says, when you put your faith in Christ, you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Jesus says, as he elaborates on that discourse, that light exposes darkness. And then he says to us in Matthew chapter 5, you are my salt, you are my light. And as you live out the Beatitudes, you will be light, exposing darkness for what it is. So it's interesting, and it is a bit perplexing. Why use the word darkness? Void. Again, translating Hebrew word, void means empty. Void, void speaks of there's something missing. And then without form, that's not quite as difficult but there's no form, there's no structure, there's nothing. But the text uses the term earth and says without form, void, and darkness. This has caused some expositors to conclude that these terms reflect the consequence of Satan's rebellion. Now that sentence I just uttered is, you're going to have to think about that for a little bit. <laughs> but, and, and this, is a, this is very difficult to put all this together in a way that everyone agrees that this is the right way to interpret this. But, Almost everyone, I'm talking about the, the expositors and the Hebrew scholars and the Semitic language people who study the God, God's word and so on, almost everyone agrees that verse 2 is saying something. <laughs> because you would, you would assume in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and on the first day he created. That's what you would expect it to happen. That's what you expect to happen. But in between that declaration of God creating and God being, in the first day he created light, you have this curious verse. And then you have, and the Spirit was hovering over. 
And it's really, um, it raises all kinds of issues. So here is a way to think about this. I, I wish I could tell you that every major expositor of God's word looks at it this way. They don't. But when we get to Genesis 3, after God creates, and then he puts Adam and Eve as the crown of his creation, his image bearers, etc., the very first verse of chapter 3 tells us about the serpent, the serpent of old, the devil, Satan. Revelation 12, 9 gives us all the titles of this being. But you know what is so frustrating? The text doesn't explain where did he come from. Who is he? Why is he doing this? And that's, that's you know, I'm, I'm not sure I can exp completely explain why, but God does not explain to us when the rebellion of Satan started. It doesn't tell us that. It doesn't give us a timeline. That is why, and that this is my conviction now after studying this for quite a long quite a few years my conviction is that genesis chapter 1 verse 2 reflects the consequences of the rebellion of satan that the consequence is void darkness and god has to deal with that chaos and that disorder. What you've just said, could you put that in the context of what we've already read here on, on Revelation 22, uh, verse 5, there will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. But especially, you know, His, his light. Mm-hmm. If he's God is light, why was there a point in time where he created and talked about that light? And then we, what we see there in Revelation. Can you... Well, I think, and that is a really great, great, great question, and it's a great comment, because what you do not see in those descriptive phrases in Revelation 21 and 22 is darkness. You don't see that. You see just the opposite. And, Daryl, that's one of the reasons why I believe there's something going on in verse 2 that is important for us to try to understand. Because God's, God's creative, good, righteous work is always associated with light. But here, it's, it's just when you, when you and, and that's what I'm trying to encourage, I'm trying to get you to think a little bit outside the box of how we often study this. Because we go from Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 1-3, and we skip verse 2. We don't think very much about verse 2. Oh, things were just, he hadn't put any form to it. Okay, that is one way to look at that. But there is more being stated here to us. Moses, who wrote this, is going out of his way using three really important words and phrases. It's without form, it's void, and it's darkness. None of those three words or phrases is, is positive, generally speaking, throughout God's Word. And it, it's, like, it's like it's saying, there's something wrong here. Something has happened. 
And so it's just, it's suggesting to us, but yet there's still that hope, but the Spirit was hovering, uh, the Spirit was hovering, where am I here? And I mean, you just, you get that, that strong sense, there's something going on here. So let me suggest something, okay? The Bible does not explain to us a strict timeline of what God did. But if God created all things, that means that he also created the supernatural world. He also created the spirit world. He also created angels. I mean, you would agree with that, wouldn't you? I mean, there's no evidence anywhere in the Bible that angels are eternal. So if they're not eternal, that means God had to create them. The Bible doesn't tell us when he did that. The Bible is focusing Genesis 1 on God creating the physical world. It doesn't explain to us in detail God's creation of all the different things in the spiritual world. So we also know from Ezekiel 28, verse 12 and following, and Isaiah 14, verses 12 and following, that in that spirit being realm, there was a creature. He was called Lucifer. He was called the star of the morning. He was called the exalted cherub. And he served at God's right hand. And Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 and following tells us that he rebelled against God. He says, I will be like the Most High. I will topple God from his throne. Isaiah, what? Isaiah 14, verse 12 and following. Ezekiel 28, verse 12 and following. Ezekiel 28 is a description. What In both Ezekiel and Isaiah, they're talking about a human king and then talking about the power behind them. And it's very clearly who it is. And so, you, you, and then you add one more thing to it, is Revelation chapter 12, I can't remember the exact verse, but it tells us that one-third of the stars joined with Satan. So one-third of the angels joined with him in the rebellion. So you had, now when did that occur? We don't know. We really don't know. The Bible doesn't explain to us. But there is a possibility, there is a probability, in fact, that what verse 2 is describing for us is the consequence of that rebellion. And so God acts. The Spirit is hovering. The spirit, there's, there's something positive after the negative. And that leads us then to what God makes the decision to do, which is create. <clears throat> now, let me, let me stop there and, and uh, see if I have lost you or if you're with me or if you have any, any questions or comments. I'm trying to... I'm trying to lay out a way to think about those difficult words in verse 2 and why they might be there. The other alternative, and there's only one other really major alternative, is all this is doing in the first half of verse 2 is just describing. This is what it was like before God created. But before God created, without form, void, darkness, okay, but why... Why elaborate on that using these three words, which are always ominous, 
negative words in God's, in God's revelation to us. Do you see what I'm saying? We have to resolve that somehow. And I think it's just explaining something to us. And it allows us to see the consequences. And it also helps us to understand why, after God creates and creates his image bearers, Adam and Eve, etc., with that clear divine prerogative, this is what I want you to do, and Satan shows up challenging. Because the question in Genesis 3 is, primarily, will God's image bearers join the rebellion? Will they join with Satan in rebelling against God? And Genesis 2 tells us they're free will agents. They have the ability to choose. They're moral beings. And you know the consequence. Humanity chooses to join the rebellion. Which the horrific consequences of that are then detailed in Genesis 3. So you're saying there's a time space between verse 1 and verse 2. Well, I'm not arguing for the gap, which is what Schofield argued. I'm not arguing for that. It's not a gap. It, there's no, it's all it's telling us is before God begins his creative work of the physical universe, there's something ominous that has occurred. And those words, form, void, darkness, reflect the results of Satan's rebellion. That's all it's telling us, Fred. That's all I'm suggesting. I'm not going to die for that, but that. it's it's at least a reasonable explanation of why he's choosing to use those words. But the hope remains the spirit. The spirit's hovering. And he's about to act. I'm still struggling with that. That's all right. That's all right. You will struggle with it the rest of your life. I've been struggling with it. I've been struggling with it for years. I really have. Because these are difficult words. Why are these words here? And I understand the negativity of how it's going to be applied spiritually to what was going on. The difficulty I have with it is how do you relate the earth to that? In other words, is the implication that Satan occupied the earth? No, I don't. I don't think so. It said he created the earth and the earth was in this condition. I'm having trouble bringing Satan and the rebellion in relationship with And I mean, uh, you're, you're raising a, a very important question there because the um, you have two words in verse. I'm not done with this yet, but it's almost ten of. You have two words in verse two a that have to be dealt with: earth and deep. We haven't talked about the deep yet. The face of the deep. We haven't talked about deep yet. That's why I, I mean, I, I, this is just this is part of the challenge of dealing with these words if we believe God is explaining something to us. If this is revelation that he wants us to understand. Because I, in years ago when I first really started studying this, I don't understand why verse 2 is here. I understand verse 1, I understand verse 3, but why is verse 2 here? Yeah, I mean, it's just, why is, why is it necessary to explain to us using form, without form, void, and darkness in the deep? Why, why is he telling us that? He could just simply say, in the beginning God created light, and on the first day he created light. Got it. But why? And that's what I'm trying to resolve. And it is, it is not easy. And that's why there is there's complexity and, and even perplexing details with these words. How are we to understand what God is telling us here? Why is he telling us this? So I am, I'm suggesting something that 
fits with how these words are used in the rest of the Bible. Because these words are not positive words in the Bible. Darkness is never a positive word in the Bible. So, okay, what is that telling us? That's all I'm just going to so, You know, the Filipinos speak of the God on our wrist or the God on the wall, and so I must bow to that even though I don't particularly want to. So if you're really interested in having another go around with this, come back next week, and we'll pick up with the word deep. All right? Lord, we're thankful for your word. Um, I always reflect on Peter's comment about Paul's writings. He says that in uh, 1 Peter that even to understand Paul, who writes things deeply, and they're often difficult to understand. Uh, Lord, there are certain verses, certain passages in the Bible that are difficult for us to understand. We're finite creatures. We're temporal creatures. You're infinite and you're eternal. And you, the infinite, eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God, are revealing to us some important things you want us to know. We just have to work hard to understand some of it. And I think verse 2 is an example of that. Lord, why are you telling us, using words like without form, void, and darkness? Um, It's hard, but we're going to try to continue to resolve this. At least we know this without any question. You are the creator of all things. And you did things with order. You did things with precision. And you did things ultimately for that which is good. And that word good in this chapter is always that which is conducive to life, that which is conducive to order, that which is conducive to structure, not chaos, not catastrophe. That's what good means. So there was something about verse 2, things weren't good. And you had to make them good. And so that's what we want to try to understand. So, Lord, we're really thankful that we know in the beginning you created the heavens and the earth. Things aren't a product of random chance. They're not a product of chaos. And out of chaos and disorder comes order, which is what one of the modern models actually argues. Lord, that's not permissible in the Bible. You are the one who creates all things. And you created a world of order and precision. Sin has wrecked it temporarily, but you're remaking it around Jesus. And that we praise you for. Give us a good rest of this day. It's a gorgeous day. Thank you for creating it and sharing it with us. So as we go into this world now for the rest of our day and tomorrow, the rest of the week, help us to represent you well. We look forward to regathering next Wednesday in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week.